So welcome to uh, Foreign Policy Fridays for the Oregon Libertarian Party. Uh, this is your host, uh, Peter Panarchy. Um, I am joined, uh, I guess I'll first say that I am the vice chair of the Oregon Libertarian Party Public Policy Board. Um, I'm joined by Gregor and Matt. Uh, Gregor, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, Gregor from Hillsborough, Oregon, and I'm a local call-in talent as well as I have a um, pot of, uh, Spotify episodes on the Liberty Mindset and as well as Gabbing with Gregor that have various different focuses. Um, just a guy trying to make it through life and tell the truth. And Matt, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Oh, uh, yeah, um, obviously, uh, I'm Matt Rao. Um, I live at, down in Coos County. Um, I'm on the LPO Public Policy Board. I um, also serve as the chairman of the uh, LPO Elections uh, or Campaigns Committee, excuse me. Uh, and uh, if anybody uh, who hears this is interested in running for office as a libertarian next year, uh, please reach out. My uh, contact information is on the uh, LPO uh, uh, website, if I'm not mistaken. And if not, uh, um, reach out to Peter or anybody else or Google my name and, and my email pops up pretty easily or my cell phone number. Um, so, no, just looking for a few good libertarians for 2024. That's that's my plug for this uh, this week. Uh, and uh, in my spare time, obviously, uh, uh, I uh, run my political consulting business. Fantastic. So we started this show as an effort to understand the current Ukraine conflict and really uh, – how we should view it, I guess, view, view the lens of like history, especially if you World War One and World War Two. So the pers- purpose of the show was to uh, this series is that as libertarian, we should realize that nearly all, every actor on, uh, for states and all sides is a state and states are evil organizations that seek to enrich their own wealth and power with no regard for the cannon fodder that fight their wars. So Throughout history, uh, most wars are fought by evil governments that do not care about us and do not really care about like who wins or who loses. It's all about the profits and losses for them. So um, this is how we view this, and I think I'm just going to – we've been through a lot on this show, so we've talked about a lot of things. So just a recap on like our idea in World War One. So Germany was forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles that named them as the sole actor for blame, World War One. But this is wrong for a lot of reasons. Um, the entangling alliance structure that caused World War One is to blame for most of the havoc that happened here. Uh, the secret mil- military alliance between France and England escalated things way past where they should have been. Uh, Germany failed to stop Austria-Hungary from advancing on Serbia, as it should have, is is definitely true. But Russian mobilization enacted what is called the Schleifen Plan, which was the German plan to prevent being encircled by uh, France and Russia. And that was a common theme in earlier episodes of this series, so check on that. So that was kind of France's aim from the beginning. Um, overall, this entire situation was an avoidable apocalypse, so this never should have happened. Uh, every side really was an empire that was on the verge of dying that maybe was having its last gasp and tried to prevent this from happening. So um, any comments on just kind of World War One in general, just based on the last couple episodes we had, Gregor, Matt, do you want to like put in there before we jump into uh, the official timeline here? Well, I think there's something that should be pointed out also, and, and I can't recall if we touched on this in a previous episode, and it's uh, about Italy in particular, that Italy had initially been a, an ally of the Central Powers and then had been persuaded by the Allies to switch sides in the second year of the war uh, with the promise of territorial gain to that country for you know what ended up being a very large number of dead for their, their, their involvement in the conflict as a whole. And, and so this largely actually, during the Treaty of Versailles, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more during the treaty discussion, um, Italy came out of it one of the worst of the Allies. And that fundamentally set up the, uh, the, the environment for Mussolini's rise specifically in Italy. 
is that resentment from all the sacrifice and all the death of the war to get absolutely nothing for it. Uh, on top of having the dishonor of switching sides with uh, on the Germans, which they had long considered their allies because they 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 essentially secured independence together uh, in the late eighteen or in the eighteen eighties. Um, so there's a long history there. I just think it bears pointing out how the the peripheral countries like the Turks could have been allies of the Brits, but if it, but it was just snide arrogance and racial racial. Uh, superiority uh, perceptions on the part of Winston Churchill that prevented uh, that from even being a possibility. And think about the countless dead that could have been avoided if they just would have actually treated Turkey with some respect. So these are some things that I just wanted to bring out as we suss out the truth. Sure, and if I remember right, I think that England actually wanted to attack Turkey preemptively in order to, like, uh, stop them from engaging in the war and they didn't treat them as an ally at all. I think they were actually like a neutral country for uh, most of the war. Right. But um, they didn't really work out that way. Well, I might encourage you to review your history a little bit. Um, Turkey was, you know, part of the caliphate and at the time and they were in charge of it. And I don't know where they were, I, and, you know, whose, whose side is who's on? Speaking about the World War, you know, the ramifications for the Versailles Treaty, um, you know, Matt was really concise on it. I'm just going to throw in that we are looking at the death of the big empires. And because of the political situation in the United States at the time, we saw ourselves as a possibility of becoming an empire which we should never have been striving for, but the folks at the time really did want to be, uh, you know, the representation of freedom throughout the world. I hate that term. I'm a real firm believer that countries must find their own freedom. Um, but, you know, the the likes of World War Wilson, World War Wilson et cetera, you know, had brought into this, this whole globalist. It, it, I really think the Treaty of Versailles was the first step in trying to have a globalist government in charge out of that came out of the league of the nations and then then eventually the united nations all of which has been trying really hard to become a globalist governance society which i'm convinced couldn't work just because those things tend not to uh and you know america had really lost her way by then uh she had be, she, she wanted to be a superpower instead of just an economic power and i think we would serve the world better by just doing what we do best, which was invent. And I would just add, I refer to the Ottoman Empire as Turkey, sort of like I would refer to Russia after after their negotiated peace with the Germans as Russia, not as the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it, it's just it's just phrasing, no, no. Um, but it is a good point for accuracy to point out. Turkey was part of a larger empire at the time, but the political dominance of that empire was all situated in Turkey. Sure, and I appreciate that. So I wanted to just quickly touch on, just because this is the Oregon Libertarian Podcast, Oregon's involvement in World War One. So uh, per chat GPT, uh, over 33,000 Oregonians served in the military during World War One, and I guess 1,200 of them died in service. Um, there was also the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation. It was based in Portland. It built 400 ships during the war. Um, one of the most notable figures from Oregon that played a role in World War One was Harry Lane, uh, who served as U.S. Senator from 1913 until his death in 1917. Uh, Lane was a vocal opponent of American entry into the war and was one of the only six senators who actually voted against the declaration of war in 1917. So Lane was a vocal opponent of American entry into the war, as I previously stated, and uh, really was one of the only people that was against it. So um, Lane believed that the United States should remain neutral in the conflict, arguing that the war in the European conflict uh, was not really important to the United States and would involve them in future uh, escalations that they didn't really need to be a part of. He was a strong advocate for peace, 
believe that war was a humanitarian disaster that should be avoided at all costs. He argued that the U.S. should use its resources to alleviate the suffering, the war's victims, rather than contributing to the conflict, which I guess as we get deeper into this and really get into the, the blockade of the Germans, I think we'll see the bulk of this episode um, becomes apparent here. So, uh, Gregor, Matt, do you have any knowledge on Harry Lane, the senator? Well, if I'm not mistaken, he's a former mayor of Portland uh, back back when that wasn't a political death sentence. And, and uh, if I recall, he's the grandson of... Uh, uh, Joe Lane, the uh, the uh, Democratic vice presidential nominee of the Southern Democratic ticket in 1860, and obviously Oregon's first territorial governor, um, uh, and, and uh, who uh, referred to who referred to uh, uh, Unionist Democrats during the Civil War as women and cowards, just to give you a feeling of his temperament. Uh, they were very. They're a family that clearly, when they believed in something, whether you agree with them or not, it came from a place of deep principle, uh, not from a, a shallow place. Um, but Harry Lane, of course, is, was much less conservative in, in the 19th century sense than his grandfather, um, and in many ways was actually a reformer. Um, but the, the, I remember he committed suicide, but I can't recall what the cause, what, what the motivation was. Uh, I just remember uh, reading about Lane in college and thinking, boy, that's sort of like a tragic figure. No, that's definitely interesting. I did not know that he committed suicide. I mean, I have here that uh, he was also very critical of what we saw as the imperialistic motivations behind the war, particularly with regard to Britain's desire to maintain control over its colonial territories. You saw it very, very obvious that this was a British colonial play, and overall, Lane's opposition to the entry into World War I was driven by his humanitarian and constitutional concerns, as well as his belief in the importance of American neutrality and the idea of anti-imperialism. I mean, I know there was a really big push by the Wilson administration to drive the country into war without even declaring war, which they did later actually have to do. And it's interesting that he was one of the only six senators to vote against that declaration. And that certainly sounds familiar. You know, I didn't know that we had 33,000 of our uh, fellow statesmen in the war. And because I'm a math geek, I had to figure it out. That's almost 4% of the population, 4% of the population of Oregon at the time. Oregon at the time had 783,000 people in it. And 33,000 of them serving is practically 4%. And that's, that is an outrageous amount. Um, you know, I find it fascinating that with where Oregon is today, how we were in such a hurry to serve. Um, now, I'm trying to remember, was the draft in, uh, in World War One? That's why they tried to jail Debs. Well, they didn't try. They did jail Debs. Uh, no, we, they definitely had draft cards, uh, and, and Debs urged people to burn them. Uh, he thought it was a violation of the 13th Amendment, and I would tend to agree with him. Uh, but uh, I would also say, though, uh, I, did, I did want to double-check, and I did. Uh, uh, Harry Lane did not commit suicide. I conflated that in my mind with Robert LaFollette Jr. from Wisconsin, who committed suicide after a political defeat. Uh, but uh, I was going to say, though, Harry Lane did die uh, very quickly after the vote for war, though, but it was from a chronic health condition, probably fed by the strain of uh, all the animus he was facing due to his opposition to the, the war effort. But I wanted to set that straight before we got. Well, and the fact that we're, again, fighting an undeclared war that nobody seems to want to stop and say, you know, shouldn't we do something official about this? Uh, you know, because that's what we're fighting right now in Ukraine and other places. No, I certainly agree, and I think that's a good point. Um, I think Harry Lane was probably a good person, regardless of his political affiliation. I don't actually know what party he was a part of, but I'm sure, Matt, you probably know because you are looking into him right now. 
No, his grandfather and he are both solid Democrats, but he was much more of the reformer Democrat of the 1910s, which had some good things and some bad things. My guess is he probably voted for the Federal Reserve. Yeah, well, they can't get everything. So I guess anything else on uh, Oregon and World War One before we move into the uh, Treaty of Versailles? Hearing no one. All right, let's go into the actual timeline. Um, okay, so in 1918, the American entry into World War One decisively would end the conflict. By April of that year, the Germans had defeated Italy, Romania, and Russia. The Eastern Army returned to the Western Front, where one million Americans would join the fray. By October of 1918, the Germans were prepared to surrender. So, at this point... Wilson posited his 14 points to Prick's Prince Maximilian. Uh, the British and the French would see these terms as too mild. Uh, you might recognize that uh, Prince Maximilian isn't actually in charge of Germany this time. The Kaiser was still in charge, but uh, as we'll talk about, uh, this would kind of change hands here as the Allies would basically force the royal government out of power. So... Specifically, um, England objected to Wilson's Plank 2, which is the freedom of the seas. So obviously England would object to that because they want to control the sea area. Um, France wanted Germany to pay for all of the civilian damage for the war, which would become like pretty much the latest staking point. Uh, Matthias Erzenberger from the German Catholic Center Party would agree to the terms of the treaty in a boxcar in the Champagne Forest in 1918. Uh, he would later be assassinated in the Black Forest in 1821, is what was called the Treason of um, Versailles. I guess the Treason of the Champagne Forest, probably. So, as we'll talk about, um, all of these terms were signed under duress. So, on November 12th, 1918... Lloyd George would give a campaign speech calling for a magnanimous peace. So Lloyd George was talking about, like, we should probably not press this too far because this is a really long war and it's been pretty brutal. But instead, uh, that's not what happened. But anyways, what Lloyd George said was, we must not allow the sense of revenge to rule over the fundamental principles of righteousness. Vigorous demands will be made Hector and bully the government and in the endeavor to make them depart from the strict principles of right and to satisfy some of the base, sordid, and squalid ideas of vengeance and avarice. We must relentlessly set our faces against that. But that is not what happened. Public outcry soon turned, pub, turned this against him, though. Lloyd George was nothing if not a flexible noodle of perceived public opinion. In December, the Liberal Party would win the largest majority in UK Parliament history at 340 members of Parliament. I mean, I don't know what the actual number of members of Parliament was, but it seems pretty large. Uh, described by many as one of the most insular, reactionary, and benighted in its history, as far as referring to the members of Parliament there, uh, made up by hard-faced men that looked like they had done well in the war. So I think this is really a common theme in the series that uh, the people that really supported this war made out by it. Originally, this war, World War One, was posited as something that would be good for Britain, a very easy victory. Not that many people would die, but as we know, millions of people would die. Um, I'm going to stop here in case we have any comments uh, by Gregory or Matt before we go on. I, I was just going to say I love the term um, khaki election. Uh, that they talk about, uh, like the color of the uniforms the servicemen wore, they call it right after military victories, so as they did after the Boer War, after uh, uh, and then uh, as they did at the end of World War One, just like Winston Churchill tried to do with very bad results for himself at the end of World War Two, and just like Margaret Thatcher did uh, after the Falklands Island War, uh, Islands War. So uh, I, I do. I, I think that's a great term, though. A khaki election. 
which uh, for those who aren't initiated in how uh, prime minister uh, ministerial politics or electioneering works, most prime ministers don't have a set election calendar. They have the power to call an election any time during their term of office for a, a renewed period of time. So you could be elected to a five-year term, your poll numbers can be high in your third year, and you call the election there for another five-year term. And that's how leaders like Thatcher in particular were able to stay in power much, much uh, longer than their uh, approval ratings on paper would seem to indicate. But uh, I just, just to give a little background for anybody who listens and wasn't aware, but the uh, khaki election, I think that was a fascinating observation. Well, and Matt, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think that the uh, royal family has some say in when elections. I, I seem to think, seem to remember that uh, prime ministers as well as the majority party can actually approach, uh, in this case now, his majesty, uh, in order to request an election. Uh, the, their, the parliamentary system is very complicated because of the way it's built on nothing but well, and, and call this good or bad, but it's built on coalition um, where you have, you know, you have so many parties, you have to have multiple parties involved. They get appointed to various cabinet positions in order to reward them for their service. Um, personally, having lived under a parliamentary um, system in Lesotho, Africa, I'm not a fan. I find that their politics are even worse than ours, though I do think, you know, we need to have more parties involved, but having a system where they can just say, we're tired of doing this and have an election anytime. I mean, they did that recently. What was it in, in uh, Italy where they are, or is it France? I forgot which, that where they and elected somebody and then just, or in, even in Britain um, recently with, uh, they, you know, elected somebody. And then a few months later, they elected somebody else. And that kind of instability I don't know. Seems a little bit rash to me for on a on a national level. I think it would work great on local politics, but in a national level, seems kind of ambiguous or or tenacious or uh, not tenacious, um, trepidatious at least. If I was well, no, and, and the British obviously are the forerunners for what parliamentary democracy is, obviously. And so, I mean, I think they have a. a, a, a a history where they've already gone through the hardships of democracy, many of the hardships of democracy, that our friends in Africa or in other countries in adopting the similarly difficult system uh, just have not acquired yet. You know, I think you learn that in making parliamentary systems work uh, without a strong executive uh, based off of experience. And I think it, we can look at the, the, the countries of the world where democracy was instilled largely at the behest of um, or a government working in their name, and then wondering why these folks are struggling with it. Uh, well, again, it sort of goes back to the 14 points of allowing people to choose what kind of governments they want. Largely when these ex-colonies uh, were abandoned by the uh, imperial powers, they still required what kind of governments they would have. And they would often hamstring uh, the, uh, the economics, uh, the, the major economic contributors of those countries. Uh, with, with very restrictive trade and economic agreements. And so uh, even though there are massive dysfunctions to the parliamentary system, especially in countries that are less experienced with it, I, I would argue that, that it's much harder to maintain uh, a corrupt government uh, in the parliamentary system like we do here because what we have with the two-party system has allowed for essentially the ignoring, the ignoring of law uh, on a partisan basis. Uh, Hunter Biden can commit his crimes Donald Trump and his kin can commit their crimes. Just don't do it in a state where uh, there's any chance of the other side ever taking power because the, the majority party, if it's your party, will give you a pass. And I think that's one of the problems that's eroding in American democracy, which is wholly different than a parliamentarian democracy. The only democracy that operates even somewhat like us is France. Uh, and their record of democracy, and frankly, I would argue their perversion of it with the French Revolution, uh, did far more damage to uh, democracy uh, than any election uh, Russians may or may not have ever had. But that's just my opinion. But no, to answer your question, though, yeah, the king does have a small role in the election process. And uh, other countries in the empire, they have what are called governors general to operate in that manner, to certify an election or when an election is officially called at the request of parliament. 
after somebody wins a majority, that person's invited by the king to form a government. It's all very ceremonial. But what's fascinating in this World War I stuff is we see they didn't even declare war by a vote of parliament. They went through the king's privy council, which is an, a, a very aggressive monarchist move for a declaration of war in a supposedly representative democracy. They wouldn't even let the people's representatives vote on it. Uh, and when you know how squeamish the monarchy had been since George III uh, in, in, in affairs of, of that nature, it is fascinating to me that the king was willing to do it that way. There must have been a massive economic and political influence that we just never... Yeah, I mean, there's a mass of the uh, British public that did not want to engage in World War One, and that was evident then. So, like, they had to do that fancy finagling in order to actually make it happen. And it all really went down to the history between, like, the French and, like, British military officers. They already had, like, a whole arrangement going. So that is a really good call. Um, if we could return to 1918 for a second to this khaki election as we have talked about, um, 237 members of this coalition signed what's called a round robin letter demanding blood from the German people. So Lloyd George arrived in Paris uh, with a mandate of vengeance from both the MPs and the ignorant masses that voted for them. The only leader taking even a more punitive stance uh, than Lloyd George was Georges Clemenceau, Apologize if I had that pronunciation wrong, but he was called the Tiger of France. So France had lost 1.3 million soldiers in the war and demanded as what they perceived as justice. He wanted a treaty so punitive that Germany would be forever crushed and could never rise again. He was quoted to say, there are 20 million Germans too many, which is roughly the population of Germany at the time. We are reminded then of Winston Churchill's quote from 1901, which I'll remind you, we'll eventually have an entire episode about how Winston Churchill was the most overrated person of the 20th century. But in this case, he was right, where he said, the wars of peoples will be more terrible than the wars of kings. World War I was a war of kings. World War II would be a war of the peoples and their extremist ideologies all more terrible than the next. To ultimately show just how one-sided this peace treaty was, Germany wasn't actually invited to the negotiations at all. This was highly irregular, looking back at the Napoleonic Wars or even the recent defeat of Russia by Germany. The victory had been so one-sided because of the Americans that the Allied powers didn't even view it as necessary to invite the Germans to the negotiations. In 1917, Wilson, the American president at the time, would say, we have no quarrel with the German people. We have no feeling towards them, but one of sympathy and friendship. It was not upon their impulse that their government acted entering upon this war. When America entered the war in 1918 of, I believe, November 18, Wilson had concluded that people were responsible for the acts of their government, quote-unquote. So this was kind of the shift. Um, we'll talk about it a little, little bit later, but like how the German people held under duress, but do we have any comments just like the general atmosphere of the treaty or like how things were organized? Well, you also see this transition, again, you mentioned it a little bit there, uh, about Lloyd George. George didn't want to go to war, but only did it because he had to protect that, that, that piece of paper for, for Belgian neutrality. Uh, and and uh, also, also who wanted an amicable peace, but then amazingly saw, just got the war, got the fever, the, the revenge fever. Again, uh, I see that quote by Churchill not meaning that World War I was a battle uh, of kings. I think though I think he's saying after the Boer War in the 20th century had become battles of people. And again, maybe I'm misinterpreting, but I think there's some value to the interpretation regardless. And I think the vengeance that we sought in the peace from at Versailles was the result of a battle of a war of peoples, not kings. Kings can come to a quick peace uh, and, a, and a just peace sometimes. 
uh, the emotions of people, especially in democracies, make that kind of peace very difficult, a lasting peace. And so I always looked at that quote as applying to World War One, that that, that wasn't a, ba- a, a battle of kings anymore, it was a battle of peoples. But again, maybe I've been misinterpreting the quote. Either way, they're both prescient interpretations. And, and again, like you said, Winston Churchill, upon any real examination, you can see is, is, is not just a, a, an undeserved figure for the praise he gets, but he's a downright destructive figure in history who should not be applauded or, 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 or honored in, in, in any significant way. Any comment there, Gregor, before we move on? Yeah, sorry, I lost my mouse. Um, yeah, actually, you know, World War I was, an, it was a unique shift in history. There was no other war before that, including our Civil War, um, where so many people were killed and injured. And part of that is because the change of tactics, we went from you know, trying to have some, we, we went from in, in the middle ages, we went from a group of farmers who had to fight in order to get whatever done, you know, people, villages fought together. If you went to war with a large group of people, even in the Roman legions, um, as far back as the Roman legions, you were with a community, the people you fought with tended to be from the same land you were from. They tended to be people that spoke the same language. They tended to be, um, you know, they had some sort of form of camaraderie and the, Romans actually structured it that way on purpose. And there was a level of, you know, honor and behavior. All of that went out the window with the advent of the belt-fed Browning machine gun, uh, the idea of a tank, the idea of um, mustard gas and the poison gases used to, to literally wholesale slaughter individuals. It was no longer a war of ideals. It was a war of survival for the people in the trenches. And it was just an incredible shift in mentality. And everybody knew somebody who'd passed away or was injured. You know, we don't realize the disfiguration of the people that came out of the mustard gas trenches who survived it. Because many people did, not a lot, but many people did survive. And where their face, their skin would be melted or they couldn't breathe. Um, You know, just the disfigurement was incredible. And everybody around saw this as an evil and had to blame somebody not realizing that they needed to look in the mirror for the blame, Um, meaning their own country before even in some cases, even sending them there. But yeah, World War One was, uh, you know, was the first real, it, it, it was a terrible war. And there's war is always terrible. Don't get me wrong. But this one was just the wholesale methods. Uh, literally wholesale methods of slaughter changed the direction of wars. It has changed the direction of war since then. We are still fighting. We don't fight in trenches as much anywhere, but anymore, but we can drop bombs and level entire cities. And, you know, the next taste we get from this after World War One, the next taste we get of this kind of warfare is the Spanish um, Civil War that, you know, uh, the European allies, except for Germany, used as a test bed for the next weapons we saw in World War II. And, you know, Madrid was practically leveled during this whole fighting from aerial bombing. It was just, and nobody had ever done that before. So, yeah, a lot of people really were hateful, and therein lies the problem. When we see, get your vengeance, get everybody to pay for it. Germany had to pay for it. They ended up printing money. They ended up creating the Weimar Republic. They ended up going broke. People couldn't eat. And that led rise to Hitler, who figured out another, even more efficient ways to kill people. Oh, we are going to get into that, which we're going to do now. Um, so, yeah, I guess we're going to get into, like, the details of the Treaty of Versailles now. So, obviously, uh, the Allies organized in Paris and had this treaty, and the Germans were not there. And one of the things that was decided was Upper Silesia, which they, was a province of Germany, was granted to Poland. And I guess this was so affronted that Lloyd George was shocked by this. So he demanded a plebiscite of the Germans. And I guess 60% of the Germans voted to remain in Germany. And later the land was given to League of Nations, which ended up in Polish hands anyway. Um, Obviously, Alsace and Lorraine were given back to France 
which if you can remember, these coal-rich lands were lost during the previous war of uh, 1875, the Franco-Prussian War, um, for the principal reasons of fomenting war tensions they had lost after attempting to invade Prussia in, in that war. And most notably, the port city of Danzig was taken away after being ruled by Germanic rulers for centuries. East Prussia was separated from Germany, and a million Germans found themselves now under Polish rule, and they found themselves in what's called the Polish Corridor. It became much more important during World War II. But Germany's rivers were internationalized, and they were forced to accept Allied imports while not being allowed to sell their own goods as exports. And to me, that one is like pretty much the most telling. That's pretty crazy that you're forced to accept imports from another country, but you're not allowed to sell exports to another country. That is pretty damning. Um, we'll move on. Uh, go ahead, Gregor. Say, and that makes it imp literally impossible to be self-sufficient. And therein lies, you know, that's part of the whole Mises um, idea of economics. If you can't produce products and sell them abroad in this global economy, then you're doomed, literally. And therein is part of the problem that, you know, I see today that we can see this transitioning where America and other countries are becoming consumers versus exporters. And, you know, you can't export all your, you can't export your wealth by purchasing your goods from other countries forever. It just doesn't work. There's a Well, when they hit the bottom of the well, they're just going to try and depopulate us, bud. That's why we've got bug burgers and, uh, well, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. I'm just being a little sarcastic, but um, uh, the treaty, the treaty, though, obviously it's a punitive document. I mean, they've economically crippled these people, and during the whole armistice, they still maintained the food blockade, which was just killed astronomical numbers of old and infirmed Germans and children. We're going to get into that, don't oh, we? Oh, yeah, it's just unbelievable. So there was no pretense of a fair negotiation because they kept starving them for eight months after the armistice was signed. The Germans would have been much better uh, to just duke it all out and leave it all on the battlefield. Uh, and then the political class in their country, much like in our country, uh, focused on its own selfish financial interests, uh, basically undercut the war effort at the end and pushed for this unjust peace. So the political class and the bureaucratic class and the wealthy uh, financial class all wanted this peace. And the people, it seems like, who didn't necessarily ask for the war, but fought the war, again, much like the Italian people, filled with a lot of resentment here, except for at least the Italians were on the winning side. This is how anybody could examine this and say that it's really, it's not just a prescription for Germany to thrive, it really is an attempt at Germanic genocide, to destroy every aspect of their culture by breaking off the Prussian heritage, destroying their monarchy, which they claimed had a lineage going back to Caesar. Um, and so, I mean, it was to de-Germify Germany before we did it after World War II, and to keep them economically dependent, uh, which... How you don't understand that that's going to end in violence, I don't know. But, you know, they claim they didn't have any idea this was all going to lead to bad. Yeah, I mean, if you look, examine, like, the documents, like, in the room, like, between the major rulers, it's, it's clear that they viewed the Germans as not actual people. I mean, I think Wilson actually said that they are beasts in regards to their refusal to sign the treaty to begin. But... I guess to get into the actual uh, terms here. So the high seas fleet was confiscated and Germany was forbidden from building new military vehicles of any kind. They were permitted a standing army of only a hundred thousand men, which was not enough to defend themselves against an attacker from any side. It obviously is very different from uh, the United States where we have the coasts. They're surrounded by enemies on either side. So Germany was also made to pay the pensions of allied soldiers which effectively tripled war reparations. So this was too much even for Wilson, who said to Lloyd's face that you make me sick. That's what Wilson said to George Lloyd. 
Uh, even John Maynard Keynes, an arch-villain of libertarians, would write later that this vindictive peace inevitably set the stage for another war. So the British were really the ones pushing for this scheme, uh, referring to like the, the, the war pensions. They saw it to only gain 1% to 2% of the reparations before that, uh, being that England's infrastructure was a largely civilian population that was largely untouched by the war. Um, but in the end, uh, they really pushed for like this change here. So Henry White, one of the five members of the U.S. delegation, uh, implored Wilson to reject this proposal. It, obviously, like it couldn't be logically connected to any of the Wilson's 14 points. And to quote Henry White here, um, logic, logic. I don't give a damn about logic. Uh, sorry, that's actually Wilson uh, res responding to Henry White. I am going to include the pensions. And later, dejected, Henry White would write, We had such high hopes of this adventure. We believed God called us, and now we are doing hell's dirtiest work. In regards to um, just the underlying proposals of the Treaty of Versailles itself. So to really drive this point home, I'm going to read this uh, next passage, which is from uh, Pat Buchanan's book that I've uh, quoted many a time, which again is called uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, How Britain Lost Its Empire and How the West Lost the World. So quoting from Buchanan here, the force admission of German war guilt in the Treaty of Versailles would have been a colossal political blunder, even if it had been true. And it was not true, adds a British historian, Russell Greenfell. Today, people do not really appreciate what Versailles meant to the German people. Triumphant in the East, they believed they had laid down their arms and accepted an armistice and peace in the West based on Wilson's 14 points. Labor leader Sir Roy Demon offers this analogy. These terms are difficult to bring home. British readers, I guess, to explain, like, in British terms, like, to explain to the British populace. But supposing that Britain had lost the U-boat war in 1917, and Germany had imposed an equivalent peace, it would have meant that British recognition that its policy of encirclement of Germany had caused the war. Confiscation of British colonies and the British merchant fleet, Dover and Portsmouth occupied, that the Royal Navy had been reduced to half a, half a dozen destroyers, Southeast England completely demilitarized, Liverpool being a completely free port with a corridor under German rule to Harwick, crippling reparations. No post-war British government would have possibly accepted this indefinitely. I'll pause here for comments from... No, look, I think if they would have asked the people of Germany in a national plebiscite, they would have rejected the, the, the treaty and would have rather starved to death and died of the last man in combat. Because honestly, accepting accepting that deal, there was no peaceful way out of that deal long term. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and again, I think it's fascinating that the, a lot of the folks we hung at Nuremberg, primarily like von Ribbentrop, hung not for crimes against humanity, but for waging a war of aggression by breaking the Treaty of Versailles and, and, and numerous other things. And it's like, well, from an unjust peace, you're only going to get more injustice, dude. You've, you've built a house uh, of international law on sand. And it's un fundamentally, since basically every conflict since the 19th century, it's fundamentally come down to might makes right. Who has more guns, more weapons, and more finance? Um, and, and, uh, it, it's, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Uh, when you look at the, the, the human toll, uh, not just on Germany, but on the, every country that was touched by the war. And we got it the lightest in the United States, but we, we had hundreds of thousands of men with severe handicaps. And even though we hear about these pensions, we hear about these pensions, they weren't ever really paid out. And, and it's not like there was things like TRICARE and military health care. My great grandfather. Uh, had his leg uh, almost completely blown off. It was like all the meat was stripped off his leg. Uh, 
and there was just skin and bone beneath the, the like, thigh. And back then, you didn't get given welfare. You weren't given anything. You were just left to be an example of what the costs of war were um, and hope your family or you can find a way to pay for yourself. And it's just, it, it is amazing because we have no perspective of it today. The human suffering uh, that really came from that war. And and to, to be so punitive in the face of victory, it's probably one of the most disgraceful moments in, in, in the history of the Western democracy. Absolutely, Matt. And it's just, and it's going to be true for no matter, you know, as we move forward, because we're really struggling as a society on this planet to try to get off of this punitive damages thing. Um, MacArthur, though not perfect, worked really hard at making sure that the Japanese were not punished or punitized besides taking out two other cities with a global, with a thermonuclear bomb. But, uh, you know, they, there were, the reparations weren't there. What reparations there were, were very limited and Japan paid them back quickly. Um, you know, and, and Japan, we ended, ended up having a relationship with versus, um, having a, uh, um, you know, being the, being over them so much, uh, though that's not a perfect example. I think that indicates a direction that we should always be thinking at the end of any kind of conflict, how can we work together to move forward versus how can we extract what. And one of the best ways to achieve a peace is allow the people of that country to determine their own political affairs. Because if you overthrow their current form of government, it's going to be, whatever you replace it with is going to be inherently illegitimate to the people. And you see that with what happened in Weimar. Yeah, you see it in Weimar, you see yeah. it in the, in the Arabic Peninsula, you see it in Africa where the lines were drawn by people who had no clue what was going on. I know you're good. That's a good point. I just think it's a good point to time to bring up like uh, what would the peace in Ukraine look like if the Americans could dictate it and like how would that cripple the Russian people and how would that create another war? I think it's a really good parallel. If either you want to speak on that before we move on. Well, as I'm, you know, I'm not much of a Russian apologist. I think, you know, I think huge mistakes were made on every side of that conflict. Yet, if we don't allow Russia to be its own country and to say, here's the lines we're willing to live with and, and let the, and accept them literally, then, you know, we're good. We are just, again, looking for another conflict in just a few years. I mean, the Ukraine conflict was based on, uh, uh, allies trying to keep Russia out of the region when they actually, in, at least from historical perspective, had some sort of right to be there. Yet people tried to push them out. Um, on the other side of the coin, I'm not a fan of r what Russia did either. So, but the point is, there has to be a certain point where we say, okay, it's over. We're forgiven. You know, everybody has to. Here's the lines, and this is where we forgive and, and move on. The problem is, is most cultures. And I, and I would say that I think there's a lot of bizarre fantasies and almost bordering on the fetishistic with the, the, the so-called left in the United States uh, and in the Western democracies uh, of, of an obsession with Vladimir Putin and really wanting to punish him and everything he represents. And I guess their preference would be to have somebody like Boris Yeltsin back, another total stooge to the crooks who were just robbing the people of Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, look, Putin was in our good graces for a couple of years, and, and then it, it didn't work out so well between us because we wanted their vote to go in Iraq through the UN, and he said no. Just like Chinese relations took a negative tone after that. And the neocons uh, in the Republican Party don't like Putin, because he doesn't, he's, he's not down with American imperialism, and the lefties don't like him because they don't like the fact that he believes the people of Russia should be able to legislate their own values in the law. Um, and so you've got this weird hybrid approach. Of, it's not just, the, I mean, the neocons, the people, the average people 
have just been taught and indoctrinated to hate Russia. It's what we do in every conflict, and the people continually gobble it up. And I'm not bad-mouthing the American people, but, you know, how many times do you have to be sold a bunch of bullshit for wars that are never in the people's interest, that always go haywire, and then uh, not start to blame yourself after a while for not doing something about this government? So, I mean, I have to take responsibility just like every other American because every person who dies in these conflicts, whether by our arms or our money or, or, or our direct action, it's done in our name. And, and that's how you get things like 9-11. That's how you get things uh, like World War III uh, or, or an incident in Sarajevo that leads the, the, the crown prince dead. You know, These, we're on such an international and domestic tinderbox right now that... I think it's become cathartic to the to the to the, the the establishment fanatics to fantasize about a world without Putin and where they would institute westernized democracy um, as they see it, which apparently is just youth transgender surgeries and abortion on demand, according to them, because the, you know this doesn't seem like a democracy so much to me anymore in this country. But regardless, it's not going to happen. And much like Lloyd George. Uh, showed his total hypocrisy at once those people in Germany voted that they wanted to stay with Germany and not Poland to just disregard the result. So did those uh, break-off republics that were formerly in the Ukraine. They, they declared independence, then they held votes to join Russia, and they voted overwhelmingly to do it. So right by the 14 points, everything the Russians have done is completely appropriate. All we need to do is just stay out of the situation. Uh, it's a shame we don't have somebody like Harry Lane in there now. We, we've instead got two two um, patsies of, of the war machine. Yeah, that was very well said, Bat. Thank you. Um, and, of course, like everything said on this podcast is not an endorsement by the Libertarian Party of Oregon. These are just the uh, feelings of people on this podcast. Um but I think this is a really good transition to you. Like, why did the Germans sign the treaty at all? And I think this is probably because of the British starvation blockade of Germany. It was hard to dispute. It was a major factor, if not the biggest factor, that led Germany to signing the treaty. Close to 750,000 civilians would die during the German blockade, sorry, the British blockade of Germany from 1914 to 1918. So just to get a sense, um, I asked uh, ChatGPT what role uh, this had in Germany in signing, and ChatGPT would say, uh, the starvation and blockade against Germany played a significant role in shaping the negotiations that led to the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. During World War I, the British Navy had imposed a blockade on all German ports, which had a devastating impact on the German economy and led to a widespread food shortages and a famine. By the end of the war... Germany was in a weakened state, both economically and militarily, and was heavily reliant on imports to feed its population. The blockade had made it difficult for Germany to access food and other supplies, contributing to the suffering of the German people. During the negotiations leading up to the Treaty of Versailles, the Allies used the threat of continuing the blockade as leverage to pressure Germany into accepting the terms of the treaty. This treaty imposed significant penalties of on Germany, including the loss of territory, disarmament, and massive reparations and payments to the Allies. While the exact role of the starvation blockade played in Germany's decision to accept the treaty is a matter of debate among historians, it is clear that the blockade has had a significant impact on the German people and was a key factor in the weakened state of Germany by the end of the war. This, in turn, made it more difficult for Germany to resist the demands of the Allies during the negotiations that led to the Treaty of Versailles. So I think this was pretty accurate, but I also want to talk about what uh, Buchanan, in the book I referenced earlier, had to say. So Buchanan agrees, but adds some more even sickening details. So when you look at the timeline, the Germans signed the armistice in November of 1918. The Allies wouldn't even present the Versailles Treaty to the German delegation until June of 1919. So during that time, they requested to purchase 2.5 million tons of foods from the Allies, and their request was denied. It's also important to mention that the blockade was enforced on neutral countries, including Little Belgium, 
the reason why the war was started in the first place. Churchill would literally call Hoover, which at the time Hoover wasn't president. He, I believe, was the Secretary of State. Um, he was trying to organize a shipment of food to the Belgians, and Churchill would call him a son of a bitch for trying to feed these people. On February 19th, the U.S. Congress would approve $100 million for food for the Germans, but none of this would actually feed anyone due to Churchill and other intervention. So to quote Buchanan again, so severe was the suffering that on March 10th, the British commander on the Rhine publicly urged food be sent to the population as the specter of starving children was damaging to the morale of the troops. General Herbert Plummer's letter was read to the Big Three in Paris at the Treaty of Versailles. Please inform the Prime Minister that, in my opinion, food must be sent into the area by allies without delay. The mortality amongst women, children, and the sick is most grave, and sickness due to hunger is spreading. The attitude of the population is becoming one of despair, and the people feel that end by bullets is preferable to death by starvation. His troops, said General Plummer, could no longer stand the sight of hordes of skinny and bloated children pawing over the awful from British cantonments. And also to note, uh, Pope Benedict the 15th plea for a blockade was ignored. One visitor to Germany also who witnessed it said, we can all feel the hate we must encounter in this assembly. It is demanded of us that we must admit ourselves to one's guilty of war. And I apologize, this is actually the German delegation saying this to the Treaty of Versailles. So we feel all the power of hate we must encounter in, in this assembly. Uh, trying to like basically talk about like we need a, an end to this blockade because our people are starving. It is demanded of us that we admit ourselves to be the only ones guilty of this war. Such a confession in my mouth would be a lie. We are far from declining any responsibility for this great war, but we deny that Germany and its people are alone guilty. The hundreds of thousands of non-combatants who have perished since can lay claim. The blockade would be finally lifted in July of 1919, after hundreds of thousands of civilians had starved to death. I'll end here for comments from my audience. Gregor, Matt, do you have anything to say on the starvation of the German people at the end of World War I? Well, I would also say that the political class in countries, especially uh, ones that know the war is over or unwinnable, often them and the economic elites push for peace quickly so they can get back to the business of making money. And so those folks, sort of like the, the center party uh, fellow who ended up uh, executed in the woods a few years later, uh, the, uh, when it's such a bad deal for your own enrichment, such as the Treaty of Versailles, the people just refuse to respect it. And, and it's sort of like the government in Afghanistan and why the Taliban was able to still maintain legitimacy after 20 years uh, is that the puppet regimes we put in place just were not respectable to the people. And just like Weimar, never had the confidence of the people. I mean, it's hard to imagine like that anyone like in today's age would recognize this as anywhere near okay. I mean, obviously the starvation of the Yemen people comes into mind. Uh, the forced blockade of like their ports of Hadeda and Aiden um, to support their, their war in Saudi Arabia. But it's really hard to imagine that anyone would be okay with this level of starvation but yet this is like literally the crux and what caused the Treaty of Versailles. And I just, I don't feel like anyone really talks about it. Well, no, I don't think, uh, again, you know, entrenched authorities and institutions generally don't like to talk about all the horrible things that happened in their past. That's only become a uh, recent tradition 
uh, in Western liberal democracies, and they don't talk about the evil things they've done to perpetuate their empire. They focus on identity politics and making neighbor hate neighbor while they continue to enrich themselves. I was thinking about that letter from the Pope, and I'm thinking, you know, boy, good thing they didn't have the technology now then that they have now because the Pope would have been labeled writing disinformation about the war effort. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, yeah, I don't really feel like we have any recompense for um, just being taken down by anyone that wants to be anti-war, but there are obviously a lot of parallels to the situation that we find ourselves in now. Um, it's just unconscionable, the amount of Ukrainians that have died in the last year uh, that could have been completely avoided. I mean, obviously, the Istanbul peace talks and uh, 2021 that were agreed to by President Erdogan and uh, President Zelensky and even Putin and obviously uh, Boris Yeltsin or not Boris Yeltsin uh, Boris Johnson rather from the UK came in and sabotaged it and this war should have ended a long time ago and it looks like if we can't stop it from ending then it, it's just going to escalate into uh, who knows what's going to happen? Well, that's the end of my outline. Um, I don't have anything else to say on this topic. I do think there's a lot of things to talk about um, post uh, Treaty of Versailles. And there's obviously a lot of changes that happened on intergovernmental levels and territories that change sides. And we probably will continue this podcast series as we go into World War II, which obviously uh, World War I, everybody believes that it could have been avoided. It was a bad war, and uh, a lot of people died for no reason. But much more unpopularly, I guess you'd say, um, people feel the same way about World War II. And Buchanan definitely does. Buchanan feels that World War II uh, should have been avoided, never needed to happen, and I, I think that will be the future uh, content we discuss in this podcast series. Sounds like a plan. And uh, before we wrap up, just uh, anybody who listens to this who's interested in being a libertarian candidate, please uh, reach out to me on the website and the campaigns committee on uh, Discord, or um, or you can find me uh, uh, via email. Just Google my name and it'll pop right up. But we're looking for a few good libertarians, and, and we're looking to make a major impact in 2020. Yep, and on that, please attend the uh, Libertarian Convention happening in Tigard, Oregon, on May 28th. Uh, it's a Sunday. Love to have you there. Um, we have a lot of bylaws proposals we're looking to pass. Most notably, we are looking to uh, allow the Libertarian Party of Oregon to part participate in nonpartisan races and endorse nonpartisan candidates. So obviously over the last couple of years would have been really great if we had, had some more libertarians in things like school board and sheriff. And I know not every county, it's not partisan, but it is a lot of counties in Oregon. So I think that should be the focus like going forward. It really is about the Mises caucus strategy of decentralized revolution. Start from the bottom and work our way up. Gregor and Matt, do you have any uh, final thoughts you want to add on to uh, anything we talked about today? Vote, vote before it's too late in the school board elections, folks. There are some, I mean, the, there are organized efforts by the right and the left in, in pretty much every community in this state of any significant population. So take the time to actually get informed on these candidates because, you know, it's not just about who you like that you see at the grocery store, and most of these counties don't do voters' pamphlets. Uh, but we're dealing with issues like transgender ideology. We're dealing with issues in the schools now of crazy uh, 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 racial theory and, and just all sorts of bizarre, inappropriate topics, from my perspective, that are inappropriate to in, uh, put into an educational environment with little children. And so uh, whether you're for those positions or against, uh, um, Find a, find, a, find a way to get informed on these elections because they are of significance, uh, great significance to the future uh, generations of this state. Uh, and those folks will be voters soon. Let us not forget. Um, but 
obviously, I hope uh, the side of right, as I see it, prevails. But go out and vote. Uh, Gregor, do you have anything you want to add? Sounds like not. Um, I guess in closing, uh, we should just recognize that World War One was an avoidable catastrophe that directly led to World War II. Uh, we should recognize this, and we should realize that unless we stop the current conflict in Ukraine from escalating, we might find ourselves in a even more deadly and unwinnable war. So thank you, everybody. I appreciate you uh, joining me tonight, and I will say cheers, and have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. Good night.